Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Yeah, speaking of low engagement, uh, Joe Biden has a policy <laughs> agenda <laughs> that people are not not that, that familiar with. That was a solid with. segue. Was good, good work there. Um, That's why they pay you the big bucks. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here today with Ezra Klein. Um, I I feel like part of the uh, slow, steady return to normalcy of America is that we now have more political controversies about weird stuff that is only tangentially related to coronavirus. And uh, that has come about this week as Donald Trump has issued an executive order that... I guess, purports to put some kind of restrictions on social media companies. It's not, I I, I think the lawyers I spoke to about this are dubious that it has any actual effect, Uh, but it's part of a kind of a, a bigger political argument that's been going on for a while that relates to Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, right, Ezra? That's the sort of policy issue here, to the extent that there is one. Yes, I think we should back up just a little bit on this, which yeah. is to say there have been it's been for a long time an argument that as Donald Trump uses social media platforms, but in particular Twitter to lie, to slander people, um, depending on how people interpret his tweets to call for uprisings in various state governments. There's this constant drumbeat of why doesn't Twitter take out these tweets, ban him, fact check him, do something, act in some way as a publisher. And not just as a publisher, but Twitter already has rules, right? It is not a free-for-all for most people on Twitter, whether or not they are well or even uniformly enforced, there is a code of conduct. Trump, um, as with many other public figures, has an exception to this code of conduct officially. Um, Twitter has a newsworthiness clause. And so something that is newsworthy, which almost by definition the president's tweets are, is uh, it's like a loophole to all of the other rules and regulations. Anyway, so that's a backdrop. Um, that's what Twitter always says when people uh, ask them about why they don't do something about what Trump is using their platform to do. So past couple of weeks, two things happened. One is that Donald Trump begins um, accusing uh, MSNBC host and former Republican Congressman Joe Scarborough of murdering an intern um, or a staffer of his long ago. Um, This is a a staffer who died in Joe Scarborough's office. She died from a blood clot um, in her head. She was not murdered by Joe Scarborough. So that's a horrible kind of slander. And he and her former partner wrote a letter to Twitter that was reported um, by Kara Swisher in The New York Times asking Twitter to stop this, saying that it is making it, it hard for him to move on, that her name is being dragged through the mud in this terrible way, that they have a responsibility to not let this happen to a dead woman and her family and her surviving family. So that was one thing where people were saying Twitter should do something. But the other thing happening was Donald Trump was on Twitter saying vote by mail would lead to massive fraud. It's just used to steal elections. It is like a democratic plot. And this was the one Twitter decided to take action on. And they did one of these weak sauce, like there's like a little tag on it saying like, here are basically other tweets, you know, saying this isn't true. Um, And it linked like CNN, a a tweet from CNN and Andrew Parr. So Twitter was basically doing a light version of what I would call contextual fact checking. But 
Trump lost his shit and then put forward this executive. You began tweeting about how Twitter was terrible, um, you know, saying they were biased against conservatives, which does not really seem to be the case, um, and put forward this idea that in his executive order that he would uh, take away their 230C protections. Now, 230C was passed um, years ago by representatives Chris Cox and Ron Wyden. Wyden is now in the Senate. And it basically shields platform publishers from liability for what's done on their platforms. Now, there's a really important part. It's not super long. It's called Good Samaritan. It's a Good Samaritan clause. And it says, no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as a publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. So that's one piece. But the really important piece is here. Number two, civil liability. No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be held liable on account of any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access to or availability of material the provider or user considers to be obscene, lewd, lascivious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable. And here is the key whether or not such material is constitutionally protected. So it says in a law passed by Congress that if a content provider, a platformer like Twitter, decides to delete material because they think it is bad, they are allowed to do that whether or not that material is constitutionally protected, which is why lawyers don't think this executive order from Trump is going to do anything. The executive order relies on, it, it, has, it begins with this whole pie into free speech and about how important free speech is. But according to Congress, like it is not Twitter's job to protect free speech. Like They are allowed to regulate their platform how they see fit. I, I think we need to back this up even Further, because a, a number of... in the beginning when man came from the ocean. <laughs> no, no, it's just a, a number of senators uh, for a while now, but like specifically in the context of this controversy, have been putting forward just a false claim about what Section Two Thirty does. Right, and this argument that you will frequently hear is that Section Two Thirty creates special privileges for internet platforms. And that if a company was not an internet platform, but was instead a publisher, then that publisher would not have the privileges that the platform gets. And so that therefore you can accuse Twitter or somebody else of acting like a publisher rather than a platform, or say you want to strip them of their platform status and make them publishers. And that's just not what the law says. Right. And, and to get it like why it, it says what it says to, to understand the, the thinking here. Right. Before the Internet exists, if you are running a newspaper and you publish a libelous column in the newspaper, uh, you are at risk of a civil lawsuit. Right. Like it's not you can't just say, well, we didn't write the column like you as a business stand behind what you choose to publish. And if it's libelous, you are at risk. Now, by contrast, a phone company. Right. If somebody uses the telephone to slander some people, AT&T is not liable for that. The phone company is just supposed to transmit phone calls, doesn't make editorial decisions about what people say. So. As a user of the telephone, you can be held liable for things you say, but the phone company can't be. A newspaper is not like that, right? The publisher, the corporate entity is responsible for the contents of the newspaper. So when the internet started, there began to be this question as to, is a website like a phone call or is it like a newspaper? And one thing thinking that was sort of kicking around in the 90s was, well, if you publish a sort of an unedited forum, that's like a phone company. And so you can say, look, we're not responsible. It's just a forum where people can publish stuff. But if you moderate the forum, right, if you remove lewd or whatever else stuff, then you have become like an editor. And now your forum is like a newspaper. And now you are liable. And so Congress's thinking at the time was, well, if that's the rule, nobody is going to want to moderate internet forums because you will then be assuming legal liability for everything that's in there. And the reason this is in the Communications Decency Act was pe people didn't want that. They wanted to say, no, you can run an internet forum that has no pornography on it, that has no yes, This was very specifically about porn. Right. I mean, in, that, the, that's in the, the initial debate. 
Right. That that's the big subject of the legislation. But so they wanted to say, look, like you can say, right. So if you go now to the um uh, the app store, app, you know, for for your iPhone, right? Like there's no porn apps on there, and that's because Apple has just decided there's there's no porn apps going to be allowed there. Uh, that's not what the service is for. Uh, Facebook, you know. Th- Facebook gets into political controversies, but there's like non-political controversies that like it's not a pornography service. And what Section 230 says is that you can exercise that kind of editorial judgment. You can say, nah, we just don't want that kind of stuff. And that doesn't make you like a newspaper publisher liable for, uh, you know, libel and, and, and slander type lawsuits. So. Republicans have now like edged into this in the specific context of political speech. They think that there should not be what they would call censorship of like right wing political figures. But they keep talking a lot about this without actually like cracking open the law because reversing that Section 230 doctrine and saying that you are going to be held legally responsible for anything that anybody says or does on Facebook, unless Facebook becomes a total free-for-all full of pornography, is not actually like a policy objective that I think Republicans support. They want these companies to be nice to conservative politicians and conservative media figures. But if they favored <laughs> repealing Section 230, they would introduce legislation that actually does that. Uh, but but they don't seem to really favor that uh, because the the practical upshot has, I think, like not that much to do with politics and a lot to do with um, smut. And it's become this like very weird sort of debate, you know, in which this 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 provision keeps getting kicked around, but nobody actually wants to make Facebook operate like a completely neutral um, uh, like content sewer. So we've already backed this conversation up enough. So instead of backing it up again, (laughs) what I want to do is look at it from a different direction. I want to look at it from the perspective of Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey and say somewhat controversially what I think he should do. Um, and, and see what you think of it. But but let's first take a break. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics Podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org slash future to learn more and support their cause. All right. So your advice for at Jack. So I've been giving this a lot of thought, actually. 
And my view on what Dorsey should do has actually changed from what it used to be. I used to think that these calls to ban Trump or do something like that were ludicrous, basically. You, you, can't, you can't not have the president on your platform because he uses it like a crazy demagogue, right? I mean, that would be, I mean, you just, it, there's like, there is a newsworthiness dimension to this. And I think I don't believe that anymore. So l- l- let me say a little bit about what Twitter is doing and make an argument they should actually reverse it entirely. I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast that they do have standards for what is supposed to be allowed and not allowed on Twitter, and that in any reasonable read of those standards, they are routinely broken by Donald Trump, to some degree by other politicians too, but but let's focus here on Donald Trump. Now, Twitter, again, it has this newsworthiness loophole. Imagine if Jack Dorsey came out tomorrow and said, we got this backwards, That instead of it being the case that if you are more important and more powerful and have more followers, you are subject to a lower standard of behavior, we're going to flip that. That if you are newsworthy, if you have more than 1 million or 5 million followers, we are actually going to subject you to a higher standard of behavior than everybody else. We are going to insist that we believe Twitter is here for healthy conversations, right? That is their stated goal as a company. We are going to insist that you speak civilly and decently, that what you write falls within a broad range of the truth. And if you repeatedly break these rules, we are in fact going to kick you off the platform. And I recognize, I being at Jack, I recognize that this is going to infuriate many politicians and possibly the president, and it might lead to like people being angry at Twitter and even leaving Twitter. And I'm okay with that, that it is okay with me for Twitter to try to set a high bar for what happens on our platform with the biggest voices on our platform for what we represent and mean and do in society. And that if trying to set that bar means politicians decide it's not for us because they would like to lie and be demagogues, like that's okay. Like they can go somewhere else. They can go to Gab, they can go to Facebook and those places can make their own decisions. But if you want to be here, like we are actually going to set some rules for the biggest players on our platform. Like we are in partnership with them, basically. Like we are giving them the space and we are connecting them to all the other people here. And we insist that this is a good place on the internet. And like that is what we want our legacy to be. And, and I think this is really important. Donald Trump in a way made that much easier this week. What Donald Trump showed is that even in a very light but extreme version of what he's doing with any kind of pushback, right? So Donald Trump is saying something really untrue and anti-small D democratic, right? I mean, this is basically a kind of voter suppression effort that he's operating on Twitter. That if you even just add some contextual tweets saying that this is like not true, he is going to bring the full force of the federal government down on you to the extent he can. And maybe he cannot do very much, but he is going to try. And so now imagine if you do nothing in the face of that, like what happens when the politician is going even further, when he's actually inciting violence? I mean, this has happened throughout human history. It is not crazy to imagine that some politician is going to use Twitter to like whip up a mob. I mean, they've done it on Facebook in Myanmar already, probably done it on Twitter in Myanmar already for that matter. And so to just say like, no, we are like drawing the line here. If you are lucky enough to be a newsworthy figure, then the cost of being on our platform is you're going to have to act like it. You're going to have to act in the same way that we have to act like that imposes a special responsibility on you. That is what I think. I understand why it would be hard to do. But I think instead of this sort of current, like lowest common denominator approach to this, like it's gotten bad. And like you see where this is going and like they should draw the line in the sand now. Well, you know, I mean, Twitter, I think, is is interesting because in, in a way they have a lot of degrees of freedom here because their company, um, though very important in sort of politics and media, is not that financially successful. You know, there's a good case to be made that they could go like in a lot of different directions. And one would be, I think, as you say, right, like become much more um, really heavy handed. You know what I mean? And say like, look, like this is like going to be a moderated forum of some kind. 
in which we are going to try to actually have a quality conversation. And like saying Joe Scarborough murdered somebody is not a contribution to a quality conversation. And that is what they have said, I want to say. That is their stated view. Right, right. And, and I mean, and I think you're right. I mean, to take that seriously, to say like, look, like maybe if some random small account says something weird about Joe Scarborough, it doesn't matter. Uh, but like if the president says it, you know, maybe first time you check in, you'd be like, hey, man, that that kind of crossed the line. And if he says, oh, sorry, bad joke and never does it again, it's fine. But yeah, like you can't just keep accusing Joe Scarborough of murder because that's not that's not quality, quality conversation. The other thing is that, you know, Twitter for a long time had a non-algorithmic display, right? It operated actually as a neutral utility in which you would opt in to reading a certain number of people's tweets. And then what Twitter.com would show you is those people's tweets, right? Now, they moved away from that uh, for various reasons, but that was a viable service, you know? And and I think in some ways, a a lot of us still sort of miss that aspect, that actual functionality of of Twitter. I, I think the harder one is Facebook. Right. At the same time as this was going on, uh, Mark Zuckerberg not only said he disagreed with Twitter's decision, he did so on Fox News, you know, which is like not a not a coincidence. Right. He he has hired um, Joel Kaplan. Yeah. Joel, Joel Kaplan to be the head guy. But Kaplan has staffed their public policy shop with a lot of Republicans. Uh, Peter Thiel is a big Trump person, an important conservative intellectual. He's on the Facebook board. Zuckerberg had a reputation as, as a liberal coming back from the Obama era. And he has really tried to rebrand Facebook up to and including going on Fox News to defend the president's right to lie to people about voting. And what Zuckerberg said was, well, I don't think Facebook should be the arbiter of truth on the internet, um, which I think is a good, like, that's a good line. I I think a a lot of us don't really want Facebook to be the arbiter of truth on the internet. Uh, But again, that pushes for a neutral platform model, which, you know, I forget when they changed it, but back when Facebook was the Facebook, that's how it worked. If I went to your profile, I would just see your posts. And if I subscribed to your posts, I would see all of your posts. And if I didn't want to see your posts, I would not subscribe to you. And Facebook wasn't um, doing anything, right? But long ago, uh, they have moved to a somewhat opaque system for deciding who gets shown what and when, the goal of which is to increase engagement with the site. So in that case, it's not that Facebook is declining to be the arbiter. It's that they are saying that they will arbit what people see purely on the basis of how much it drives on-site engagement time. And, you know, I mean, I guess that's a defensible business decision. But like, I don't know, like you and I are journalists. Um, if, if, <laughs> if somebody pitched an article and somebody else in the room was like, well, that's totally wrong. And then a third person in the room was like, well, it doesn't matter whether it's wrong or not. It'll get clicked on a lot. Like we, we wouldn't run that. You know, like, I, I, I don't know. Like, I, I know people have like a low impression of the media, but like we don't do things like that because it would be... Um, morally wrong to just not care but I, I want to I want to come back to I want to I want to come back to something that is going on yeah. in what Zuckerberg says because there's two arguments that Zuckerberg will make um Dorsey's made in other contexts there's the one about should Facebook or Twitter or any of these players be the arbiter of what's true on the internet or what's decent on the internet and first of all they already are they all already have codes of conduct kind of things about what will get something taken off. So let's use not true exactly, but decency. I mean, as you noted, they have decided that pornography is bad. And so like you can't have nipples on these, um, or at least female nipples. You cannot have female nipples on these websites. But yet, can accuse Joe Scarborough of murdering. But like, it's just, it's genuinely weird. And it is a choice, right? They are making a choice between right. what is decent and what isn't decent. So one, they're already doing it. Two, there has always been, I think, a much more um, 
like persuasive argument that the size of these platforms makes this kind of granular moderation somewhat impossible. And our colleague over at The Verge, Casey Newton, has done extraordinary reporting on these like huge contracting services they use to do moderation on the billions of things going up every day and the PTSD the moderators end up having. It's like a whole like hellscape over there. So they're trying to do it a bit, but they can't do it for everything, right? And I'm pretty sympathetic to the idea they're going to miss things. And algorithmic moderating is very dangerous, I think, and for a lot of reasons. That is why I, that is why for me, the thing that clicked in my head was the newsworthiness exception. That it is just not the case that given the scale of these companies, that many accounts have more than 5 million followers. Just not that many do or even 1 million followers. I have more than 1 million followers on both of them because I am a popular person on social media. They should like be rigorous about what I do and don't do there. Because I am, by the way, rigorous about what I do and don't do there, which is why I don't do very much on either one at this point. But they could have, like, it just would not be for these multi-billion dollar companies a scale problem to subject these accounts to a higher level of scrutiny. And there could even be an escalating level of scrutiny as you go up. I mean, if you have more than 100 million followers, like that is a handful of accounts now. Like it is just not that much. President, only one guy is the president of the US. There are only so many world leaders. You could do it. So you could do it and you could say that there is going to be a different rule at the top. Like I really want to stress this point. There is a different rule for the most powerful players on these platforms. They operate with more leeway, not less. Because they have more power, because they are newsworthy. And I do, I will say in a way, the press bears culpability for this. I mean, I'm somebody who has written a lot. I've written about this in my book. I've written about it in Vox. I've talked about it on on this show. I've talked about it on my podcast. I think newsworthiness is now like the loophole that in the media, in the journalistic news media, lots Mm -hmm. of terrible things slip through. And like social media with its massive scale and algorithmic reach took that loophole from us. They said, oh, that's interesting. Like if something's newsworthy, then like whether or not it's true, whether or not it's decent, whether or not it's racist, whether or not it's dangerous, like all that goes out the window and it's like totally fair game because it's newsworthy and nobody can criticize you for amplifying something newsworthy. Now, we did that in a somewhat different way that I think has had its own bad effects at times, but then they took it like way even further. And so like I have been arguing in the media context for a long time now that we need to rethink the definition of newsworthy and how we treat it. But it's even truer for social media, like because like they do not contextualize. Like when we cover these newsworthy things, like we at least do say like, oh, you know, the president is lying or like we contextualize or we do whatever it is we do. We're like trying to cover it directionally to inform people about what is going on. They're just using newsworthy to like let the player do whatever they want, right? To lie, to slander, to whatever. And like that's really bad. Like they have taken something that was already a problem, a gray area, like something that could be hacked and just like blown it into a complete limbo, right? A complete, um, like, an, a, like an exploit in the system that these politicians can use. And I think they should stop. And like the Zuckerberg argument here doesn't hold up. And to some degree, the Dorsey one doesn't either. I get that it's hard. And I want to be super fucking honest about this. If I were CEO of these companies, I'm not sure I would have the courage to do what I'm declaiming here. Like they have boards of directors, they have pressure, they have audience, they have like, they don't want to fire people. They want to be the big, like they have all the kinds of things that make you do what your institution needs you to do. Like individual leaders of institutions are way more constrained than people think from the outside. And not only are they actually constrained, but they become cognitively constrained. Like you have a lot of motivated reasoning operating, but like it is lucky for me that I'm not. And like Jack Dorsey, like he spends all this time in meditation retreats every year to like try to get his head clear and like out of this. And like what, like I think they should do the hard, courageous thing here because if you are Jack Dorsey and you invented Twitter and your legacy is Donald Trump, you should think really hard about that. Like that is not what you want your legacy to be. But so, okay. But I I mean, this gets into, you know, the really deep issues, right? Because I find one thing that gets difficult with any of these conversations, because they tend to, um, 
you know, cross-pollinate between sort of political journalists and tech people, and we're talking this, that, and the other thing. And the question is, like, what sort of normative force does the word should have, right? And there's like a tech business discourse in which should means should do in order to uh, be a zero to one high growth startup, you know, a good to great corporate success story. And when journalists talk, I mean, I, you know, I, I've managed to become like an old man uh, since starting as a as a blogger a million years ago. We say should as in like the highest minded pursuits of journalism with a capital J. You know, we really should find a way to cover what's important and not just what's newest. Right. And then, you know, we, we want to try to make the business model sort of work around that. And the interesting thing about Twitter and Facebook having become so important to the media ecosystem is that these are not like journalism companies. You know, their executives are not people who love journalism. They don't come from newspapering families. Their key uh, middle managers are not people who once were beat reporters. There's a cross-pressure between business considerations and journalism considerations in journalism companies, but it's challenging to make a journalism company behave totally unjournalistically without breaking it because it's full of journalists. And like Facebook isn't isn't like that. You know, it's full of um engineers. And it's a really impressive like success story. And when you sort of start a dialogue about, you know, misinformation or, or whatever, they kind of translate it into a computer science problem. And like, well, if we could come up with a, an algorithmic way to take care of misinformation at broad scale that was transparent and uncontroversial, like we would we would love to solve that technical problem. And you're saying, well, you could sort of cut the technical problem down to size by only applying it to sort of the biggest, most rigorous people. But if you did that, like you would just necessarily be left with a smaller company, right? Like you wouldn't be achieving the aspiration of connecting the whole world. So, you know, I mean, it's like I, I, I both agree with you that they should do that in some sense, but also they won't, not just because of cognitive capture, but like values, like what, like what is what is important. I, but I want to, I want to put, I want to pu push on this because yeah. it's true and it's not. Look, I've reported a lot with these guys. I've reported like a ton inside Facebook. I have talked to them about these issues. So I'm not, I am not speaking like just atmospherically when I say that they claim these values publicly and privately. I am not saying they should become journalistic organizations, but I, I will say that publicly Jack Dorsey has said as a matter of official policy for Twitter that Twitter's role in the world is meaningful conversations. I don't remember yeah. if he uses meaningful or healthy more often, but like that is his stated view on what Twitter does. And it, it got like a lot of mockery, but Zuckerberg just gave like a new account of Facebook's founding. I think it was about a year ago now where he said the point of Facebook was to make the Iraq war not happen. Like that when he started Facebook, what he saw was like a lot of people's were being cut out of the conversation and the conversation was bad. And like, that's why the Iraq war happened. Like he has talked. I mean, people in these companies, they are you are you are leaning on the techno side here, but all of them are techno utopians. Like that is the water they swim in. That is where all of this took root in the Bay Area. That is like what Stuart Brand is. I mean, they believe in making the world a better place, as, by the way, does Mark Zuckerberg. That's what the Chan Zuckerberg initiative is. Like, they they do not want to just be neutral. I mean, they do, but what they want to say is that being neutral will be better. That is, like, how the world will get better. Now, of course, they're not neutral, right? The algorithms make them not neutral. But I don't want to fully let them off the hook. Like, the problem is not that all of these 
places are run by human computers who, unless you can translate this in like a seeing like a state fashion into how computers see, they can't solve the problem. Like I have talked to them about how you solve these problems. Just a couple weeks ago now, Facebook announced that it was launching something it has talked about launching for a long time, which is this weird Facebook external Supreme Court, which is staffed by a couple of human beings who are independent of Facebook. They are appointed, but somewhat independent. And they will like they will adjudicate these decisions like these decisions will come up to them in some context and they will make calls about what is appropriate and what is not facebook recently hired like a chief ethics officer like these things are right. happening in these companies and so look i i hear the cynicism and we agree they're not going to do this but i don't want to say they are not going to do it because it does not fit with their stated or even private rhetoric about themselves like they may not do it because it's bad business they may not do it because to piss off the president is regulatorily dangerous because it would be bad for their stock price or even because they think it would be polarizing like there are all kinds of reasons they will not do it, but zero of those reasons are it does like they have they their view of themselves or their publicly stated view of the company is that it does not matter what effect they have on the world. That is not that is not the the mission. No, I mean, I, I, I agree with that, but that's the sort of like central. I mean, I think not just for for technology and certainly not just for social media. It's a, the central dilemma of of American business in in this day and age is that you know nobody says all i'm doing is trying to make as much money as possible like i i have never heard somebody say that in my life in any capacity um and it's not because they're lying you know what i mean it's like nobody particularly rich people don't just think that like man, I just got to get a little bit more money, right? Like you want to tell a good, people like money, but they also like, you said this, it's like, you know, they're, they're the hero of their own stories. And like, we're changing the world. We're doing good things with this business. Um, but also we have a set of deeply ingrained strictures in which like you are supposed to be maximizing shareholder value. And everybody will have a, a rhetoric of like, our mission is blah, 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 blah. But also nobody is going to say, well, and here's how we are compromising shareholder value in order to achieve that mission. And it's not to let anyone off the hook exactly, but it's that unless like forces come into play that that bring those things into alignment. And I think one of the big ones is employee sentiment, right? Like there is a constant war for talent in market leading companies in the United States. Um, one of the big reasons why these companies all have like a lot of rhetoric and high minded mission statements is that you want to get people working for you who have like intrinsic motivation to come to work and, and do a good job in the morning. And so the idea that like this company does something worthy gives you a real business advantage if it makes people you know want to work for you and want to work hard and, and want to be productive and I think it's incumbent on like each and every person sort of in the guts of a big institution not just at the leadership level but but at the rank and file level to really think about that you know like not like are they trying and oh it's hard but is like is at core what this business is really doing like is it is it good like does this help do i do i really believe it and you know i think in a lot of cases it it isn't just because it's hard to be responsible with information and also have everybody want to use your service like there's just a there's there's such a strict tension there I can't believe I'm being harder on them than than you are. You're so much harder on them than I am. <laughs> no, I've gone, I've gone, I've gone soft in my old age. <laughs> it's it's uh it's it's a it's a weird inversion in this conversation. I thought I would come in and you'd be like, just shut them all down. Well, <laughs> I mean, you could shut them all down. Um, you could turn them all into cesspools of pornography, as Republicans say they want to do. <laughs> I mean, people say people say that was bad, but Tumblr was great. Yeah. Um, and was like a fascinating uh, of all of these is probably the healthiest of any of them and like had a lot of pornography that like 
kids were in some weird way using for like self-expression and self-definition. And it was like a fascinating, like queer community and all these things. And it, it was like Tumblr, which then got bought by Yahoo and they got all weird about this stuff. But it, it, was, it was like very weird. And one of the problems with, I think, Twitter and Facebook is they don't want to be weird, right? They want to be, they, yes. they're, they're too good of a business. And so they like need, they need things to be pretty structured. But that again, like they're making lots of these conversations, these decisions all the time. So it can't become anarchic the way Tumblr became. No, no. I mean, I agree. And and I will say to, to one extent that just like I... I have some doubts about your vision for this is that like I have some nostalgia for the actual pre-CDA internet in which services were incredibly reluctant to moderate anything and everything was kind of nutty. I don't think it's totally crazy to say that if Mark Zuckerberg doesn't want to be the arbiter of truth on the internet, that he should like really not be the arbiter of truth on the internet. Like, there was a time when Facebook was much less uh, managed than it is now in terms of what was up there. And it was still like a way for people to connect with each other and you could see what other people are, are all about. And, you know, it had some it had some utility. I mean, I, I don't know. I just I, I take both sides of this dilemma very seriously. I, I just actually think I mean, here I'm agreeing with you that like, these companies are not fully taking their own rhetoric seriously, right? That like, I respect and appreciate Mark Zuckerberg's lack of comfort with the idea that he is going to be like the editor of all conversations. Uh, but so much of what we sort of take for granted about Facebook, like already has that function, right? And amping up engagement Right. Like that actually puts a huge thumb on the scale in terms of what kinds of content you get. Right. Because it's it, it rewards a lot of like identity reinforcing and getting people stirred up and different kinds of fights. Right. It's it's really like if you were talking about how are we going to have like a calm, elucidating discussion of important subjects, that would probably not be a super like high engagement, quote unquote undertaking. Um, and, you know, so you're you're making a big choice when you decide that's what you want to index on. And it, it, I think it's led us into some, you know, uh, unfortunate corners separate from from Donald Trump. Well, maybe we should lead us back out. Why don't we take a break and talk about Joe Biden's uh, policy agenda? Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to Hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com, code WEEDS, to save up to $400. Hydro.com, code WEEDS. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com. Joe Biden came to be the Democratic Party nominee through a slightly odd direction in which he had not actually talked that extensively during the primary about his policy vision. He really emphasized electability and uh, the fact that he was Barack Obama's sidekick. And we talked a lot about but are, the different are things. We, are we thankful enough for Barack? Do we say thank you enough? <laughs> yeah, he was a great president. We, we don't talk about that enough. Um, the soul of America was is a big Biden theme. Um, 
souls don't lend themselves to white papers. Uh, And so the discussion was very much about, like, what does Biden not agree with? Like, we heard a lot about that. So I just did an article. It was like, okay, so what what is Biden's agenda? What is he running on? And, you know, it's it's a lot, right? He's talking about doubling the minimum wage. He's talking about doubling Pell Grants. He's talking about quadrupling or more housing assistance. Uh, He's talking about a, a huge amount of money and new standards and stuff coming into clean electricity. He's talking about uh, tripling funding for uh, low-income schools. Um, it's just like it's very— a much bigger public option than was considered during the Affordable Care Act uh, debate proper. Yeah, although, I mean, on, on health care, I think it is true that he— it, it, his agenda was like not just more moderate than Bernie Sanders's, but more moderate than uh, Buttigieg's or, or Better O'Rourke's, but still a significant change. And, and even like there's some nerdy stuff in there, but like re-indexing from silver plans to gold plans is actually a big change. Like premiums and deductibles would be way lower under that. All of which is to say, I mean, I think you've written this, uh, that like Biden is this very um, party figure. You know, he's really really truly runs as like the head of the Democratic Party and the uh, custodian of all of its different stakeholders. And so you get this agenda that is really strikingly progressive, even though Biden himself does not really have that profile or personal history, because the Democratic Party has come out of the Obama and Trump years as a much more monolithically progressive uh, political party than it was in 2004 or, or 2006. And that's really reflected in Biden's policy agenda. And how much would change in a Biden administration is going to have an enormous amount to do with how many Democratic Party senators there are, and really little to do, frankly, with Biden's policy disagreements with Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Yeah, I have to laugh about this because it is such a low engagement topic that so Roger and I had written a piece months ago when the primary is still in heat, uh, arguing that Biden and, and, and Buttigieg were the moderates. Like if you really looked at their agenda, it was way to the left of what we've seen before from any nominee. Um, and went through some of these same policies, but like nobody noticed that piece. And like, I don't know that you knew that we wrote that piece. And there is a weird way where people do not want to talk about Joe Biden's policies. And I don't exactly think it's because he doesn't want to talk about his policies. But one thing, you said this in the weeds the other day, where you're like, Joe Biden is what he seems to be, which is a longtime figure within the Democratic Party. He's like a a Democrat from the 90s in certain ways. His policy agenda has moved over from that. But in a way that was true for Democrats in that era and, and going forward, he's not very good at and does not rely on symbolic policy communication. So in the way that like Bernie Sanders had a lot of policies, but like what people can typically do is name three or four, you know, it's like free college, which wasn't really free or Medicare for all or Biden doesn't have those. He doesn't have these, you know, or, you know, Warren really leaned on canceling debt. Biden is doing to some degree versions of not those exact policies, but expansions of health insurance. He's accepted some cancellation of student debt. But in all of them, it's a little bit more like how Democratic policy campaigning tends to go, which is like, here's a paper with 40 points in it. A bunch of them are tax credits. I mean, he's definitely getting advice from those parts of the party. And at the same time, the party has moved quite a bit left. It's moved in a more ambitious direction. He is very consciously. um, So the uh, agenda you are writing through now, and people should read this piece because if you don't know what his agenda is, you should. It's very much like the center of like what like the Democratic House, right? Nancy Pelosi would would happily bring all of this to the floor. Um. Now, the thing that is happening is Biden is simultaneously self-consciously trying to uh, not just act as party leader, but bring the party together. He is not making the left bend the knee to him. He has created these these task forces that have a lot of very sharp critics of him on them. I think this is a very impressive thing that he's done, by the way. So, for instance, uh, uh, Representative Ocasio-Cortez and... um, Varshini Prakash from the Sunrise Movement are both on the climate change task force. And Ocasio-Cortez said she wasn't sure she would vote for Biden, if I'm remembering this correctly. And Varshini Prakash and the Sunrise Movement gave Biden an F on climate policy, which I think, and like a lot of climate people I know think was kind of a ridiculous thing to 
do like by the standards of this it was at the very least it was a very oppositional thing to do and you could very much imagine i think this would have been normal for the nominee of the party to say well all of you who treated me with such contempt like you're out you know like i'm not talking to you but instead they're on his team right they're on his task force so he's going to even i think expand this agenda for where it currently sits and this work that biden is doing to me in a way is a much more honest approach to fashioning a policy agenda. It is like he is saying that the only thing that is going to pass is the thing the Democratic Party can agree on. Like this was always the best argument the other senators made against uh, Bernie Sanders in the debates where they're like, you have this Medicare for all thing, but your own party senators don't support it. So why are we arguing about it? Like they were there on that stage that people would have to vote for it, like Michael Bennett and Amy Klobuchar. And like they were saying they opposed it. And so, like, you know, Sanders was trying to convince them they were wrong, but it wasn't working. And what Biden is trying to do is locate where the party is. Like, what can he do that is acceptable to the side he represents and to the side they represent simultaneously? Not try to win a fight here, but navigate to a center. And the, the, the thing people have been afraid of with Biden on the left is that he has always talked about doing this with Republicans, this kind of coalitional, concessional approach to finding a deal. They looked at him and they looked at his record and said, OK, he's going to get in there and he's going to try to cut a deal with Republicans. And what's interesting about it is that he's doing exactly what they feared, but with them. He is saying that I'm going to take people who have treated me in some cases you know, not even poorly, just have disagreed with me, right? Have, you know, like been been on the other side of me um, and who like I don't naturally agree with on some important things. And I'm going to try to find the deal and like get over our past um, disagreements to find where we can come together on a compromise. And it's a like this is how governing actually works. It's in some ways not as exciting a way to campaign, but it is how things pass. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's that's right in terms of a, of a governing agenda. What, what I think is interesting or maybe lacking in this is moderate Democrats are not as good at coming up with sort of snappy phrases like free college and and Medicare for all. But they also, I I think, don't quite have what you might call a, a public philosophy that they want to articulate. Because what's interesting about this agenda is that while it's sort of very properly, it's coded as the more moderate strain of of Democratic Party politics, in a way, though, what it really is, is it is more monolithically focused on helping the poor than more, quote unquote, left wing strands of Democratic Party politics are, right? Like, they're really big changes coming in this Biden agenda, if were it all to pass, to low-income people, because he is substantially increasing the scope and generosity of these means-trusted uh, welfare payments, right? But he's not taking a big bite out of the billionaire oligarchy, uh, which, you know, both might be the right thing to do as a matter of substance, and also just like annoys a lot of middle-class professionals who aren't billionaire oligarchs. And he doesn't transform what a typical middle-class person's life would be like, right? If you go from America to Sweden, there's this seat, as like a a middle-class person, there's this sea change where there is much less private consumption in Sweden, but much more public provision of services, you know, whether that's childcare and college and your healthcare, uh, the mass transit is better. And in exchange, like the cars are smaller, the houses are smaller, people's appliances aren't as good. And that's like the left vision. The, The Biden vision you know, I think it is more politically sound. And in some ways, it gets at the most pressing problems in America in an important way. But it's also not really one that he articulates in that way. Nobody has a sort of stated public philosophy of life in America is actually pretty good, but it's really unconscionably bad for the poorest people, given how affluent America is. So we're going to make a bunch of changes to fix that, right? Like, it it almost sounds weird. Like, you're supposed to talk about your agenda for the middle class, and Biden does, but it's really an agenda for low-income people and, and for environmental protection, uh, which is important and, and not, a, not a trivial thing. But, like, 
that's what's going on here. That's the difference between free college and double Pell Grants. And it's it both has some appeal to me, but it's also obvious that the people who hold that philosophy don't quite want to articulate it publicly. It was a very, I mean, this is for another weeds, but a lot of the people who are the most dismissive of wine moms and professional managerial class, like that particular strain of, I would almost call it like nostalgic working class leftism. Mm -hmm. When it gets down to the policy fights, what they are demanding is a set, is an agenda that is much friendlier to that community of people. Right. right. Like that they're demanding policies like the way like free college with no means testing that would be quite good for like the children or frankly the 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 members of the professional managerial class. Um whereas like Biden and and this was a, a an argument Hillary Clinton's campaign made oftentimes in 2016 against Sanders uh, kind of quietly, but it was something they believed that like they were more focused on the poor. Now the size of Sanders's agenda was simply bigger. Um, and so, like, I think you can make an argument that it was better for the poor in, in, in that way if you believe in all passing. But if you believe in constraints and you believe in sort of prioritization, uh, like, there's just no doubt that sort of Biden and like this strain of, of, of the Democratic Party, is very, it's very focused on people who don't have that much money, whereas a lot of sort of the left that has developed a rhetorical stance against, you know, like, reasonably well-educated, middle-income um, political coalition building is nevertheless like much more insistent on policies that the difference is it would be really good for those people. Well, I don't think it's that it would be good for them. It's that it's that what the left wants is to transform the lives of sort of reasonably comfortable middle-class Americans, right? They would, we, I'll, I'll say we, because this is who I am, we would both enjoy many more government services in the sort of Bernie-topia than in Biden's agenda, but we would also be paying higher taxes, right? Like Biden's thing, right? He he simultaneously, with all this, pledged not to raise taxes on anyone earning under $450,000 a year, Right. So the the Biden calculus is like, if you're not rich and you're not poor, you're not going to pay more and you're also not going to get that much more. Right. You are kind of a, a bystander in the game of economic redistribution that he wants to pay. Whereas the Bernie proposition is is we pay more and then we get different stuff. And it's to say that, like, um, your values, it, it, it engages it both alienates more middle class people and engages them more because it speaks to a question of what our values should be. Should we accept less private consumption in exchange for more public goods versus should we be uh, should we feel sad about the fact that America is so rich, yet the bottom 20 percent of our income distribution is worse off than, you know, people in Canada or Germany? Yes, that's why I, I agree with everything you just said. And I lean towards more actually universalism in a bunch of these programs myself. But um, nevertheless, that's why I think the coalitional rhetoric is interesting, right? Like you would yes. naturally want to build a coalition that was more oriented towards what you were trying to, like the people you were trying to give things to on the margin. But I think Biden talks less about the poor in some way, but is actually more focused on them, which is the old democratic thing to do. Like you guys were talking about this in terms of race on on Wednesday, but um, it's to be targeted, but talk in universalistic terms. Whereas oftentimes um, some of the left seems to want to like talk in targeted terms, but be much more universalistic in policy, which is just like, a, it's an interesting inversion. But I think we will, to, to totally untangle that, we'll have to wait to another weeds. Yeah, but I mean, I do think it, it you know, you're in, in coalitional terms, though, I th do think it helps explain why Biden, you know, Biden, Biden's original core base in the primary was so heavily geared toward working class African-Americans. Right. And then it becomes this slightly odd upstairs, downstairs thing where the richest Democrats prefer moderates who aren't promising to abolish billionaires and stuff like that. But also African-Americans prefer moderate Democrats. And then you have this kind of um, interesting like bourgeois socialism where people in the middle want this like much more transformative kind of agenda and can't quite seem to to put it together uh, because it, it's just like it's not numerically enough people.
I think that is I think that is true. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, I don't know. It's a little banal, but I, I, I in, in some ways it frustrates me because I think I think like highly ideological leftists just underrate the extent to which uh, they have gained power over the past 10 years because more people agree with them than used to, but they don't win power because not enough people agree with them. And it's like the most boring thing in politics, but like you got to go out and convince more people. I think that is a good place to 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 close out. So go out and convince more people. Maybe convince Jack Dorsey to to give the speech I said. Um, but yeah, let's. That's do the it. weeds. That's the weeds. Okay. Uh, thanks, Ezra. Thanks as always to our producer Jeffrey Geld. Uh, the weeds will be back on Tuesday uh, with a, a little something special uh, interview uh, that that I did with uh, Matthew Klein. Um, it's really great. Uh, so uh, we will see you then. Bye. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.